This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, today for our hot question of the day, we are talking about cell phones. You may have heard in the news the 300 residents in the village of Port Clements on Haida Gwaii now have cell phone service, and that is for the first time ever. As the mayor said, it's their first day in the 21st century having cell phone service. So it made us think, though, about back before we had cell phones and the way so many people are kind of chained to their phones these days, they can't go anywhere without constantly walking around looking at their phones. So we're asking you, honestly, has your cell phone been a welcome or unwelcome presence, do you think, in your life? Could you live without it? Or could you just say, no, I have to have it with me, have to have it in my hand as I'm going about my daily business. So let us know. You can use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. And if you are on Twitter, go to simisarah980 to cast your vote on this. We are gathering reaction to what has happened in Milford, Saskatchewan at this hour. And that is that the driver of the semi-truck who caused the Humboldt Broncos bus crash has been sentenced to eight years in prison. That sentence coming down about half an hour ago now. Now, the Humboldt Broncos have released a statement. And in that statement, they say, the Humboldt Broncos organization is thankful that this legal matter has been resolved and that Mr. Sidhu is being held to account for his careless actions on April 6, 2018. As was stated before, it is appreciated that Mr. Sidhu took responsibility for his actions and that he spared the survivors, families, and the community from reliving this tragedy during a trial. So the Humboldt Broncos president, Jamie Brockman, says, This past year has been extremely difficult. Having this legal matter settled and this sentencing complete is a big step in the healing process for the survivors, grieving families, our organization, and the community of Humboldt and surrounding area. The sentence is subject to varying opinions, but what is important is that Mr. Sidhu uh, pleaded guilty, has shown remorse, and has remained accountable for his careless actions. The Humboldt Broncos wish to thank all whom have supported the organization and everyone affected. That statement released from the Humboldt Broncos just a short time ago. Let's get some more reaction to the sentence. Joining us now is Sarah Comadina, who's a global news reporter in Melfort, Saskatchewan this morning. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. What was the reaction when that sentence was handed down today? Well, it was actually a pretty quiet courtroom as the reaction was handed down. Uh, there there wasn't much reaction or, or any gasping. I think families were pleased, so to speak, that sentence, uh, that, that eight-year sentence was given to Sidhu. He, of course, was given um, eight years in prison. This will be served concurrently. He was given eight years for each count of dangerous driving causing death and five years for dangerous driving causing bodily harm. Okay, and so the, have any of the family members had anything to say at this point? Uh, we haven't heard from family members yet, but we are expecting to hear from them as this is just happening underway. We heard about the sentence just uh, about 20 minutes ago, so family members are likely gathering their thoughts right now, but we are expected expecting to hear from them today. Sarah, was jail time expected in this case? Yes, it was. We were expecting uh, to have jail time uh even this morning, we, we were aware that Sidhu was going to be given some sort of sentence. We weren't sure what it was going to look like earlier. The Crown did want to see Sidhu's sentence for 10 years, served concurrently in a 10-year driving ban. Um, but 
the judge, when she was handing out the sentence, said that his guilty plea uh, does play a role in her decision. Right. Did the judge expand any more on why this particular sentence? Yes, she was she was comparing it to some other cases. Before this sentence, the longest sentence for something similar to this was six years. Um, but the judge did talk about how nothing can turn back the clock and that families um, are just torn apart through this bus crash. And of course, with 16 deaths in the in the bus crash and 13 people injured and also still recovering from those injuries. Um, this played a role in her decision. And uh, she also said when she was handing down the decision that she does hope that um, Sidhu and every family involved can find a way to heal. Right. That's going to be the key here as well. Now, leading up to the sentence, uh, I understand that Jaskrat Singh Sidhu did meet with some of the families. Yes, he did. And what we heard from some of those family members that met with them, it was a very emotional time for them. Mm-hmm. But it was also a way to help them through that grieving process. Uh, these family members said that they want to forgive Sidhu and they, they have forgiven Sidhu, but but his actions were just horrible that day when that did happen, but he didn't mean to do it. So there is a lot of compassion there for these families that are just grieving such a significant loss. Oh man, I think the families have just been amazing and remarkable throughout this whole process there. What about the community of Humble? What, what has this done for Saskatchewan? It's really brought Saskatchewan closer together. And I think that when you when you hear about something like this, nobody can imagine what this is like, but it happened here and people are living through this. And we're also seeing the families grieve firsthand. I mean, a lot of these people wouldn't have been in the media before this, but mm-hmm. we're seeing them grieving firsthand on air, talking about their loved ones and learning about these people. Um, I think that Saskatchewan has really come through for for these families and really worked to support, but not just Saskatchewan. I think Canada as a whole has really, has really come together. Yeah, it's so true. They have. Listen, Sarah, thank you for taking the time to chat with us this morning. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's Sarah Comadina, a global news reporter in Melfort, Saskatchewan, where these court proceedings were taking place this morning. We know that Jaskrat Singh Sidhu has already been taken away in custody, will begin serving his sentence today. Uh, That is for the 29 dangerous driving counts that he pleaded guilty to in the Humboldt Broncos bus crash, which killed 16 people and injured another 13. Eight years is the sentence. And now he did plead guilty. That's been mentioned over and over and over again. He met with the families. Uh, He did everything that was asked of him to try to uh, talk about the remorse, apologize to the families, let the families, you know, say what they wanted to say to him. But eight years, the Crown had been asking for 10 and the defense had been asking for, you know, 18 months to two years. Is eight years enough? Now, that is a big sentence for an, a case like this, right? It's not very often that we, we see something as horrific as this. He will very likely also be deported uh, back to India after his sentence is served, because that's a pretty long sentence. He is not a Canadian citizen. He's a permanent resident, so very likely that will also happen. So is that sentence okay with you? There's a lot of discussion about this right now, and I think the families have just been amazing. 
the grace under pressure, under grief that they have that they have displayed. I, I just don't know if I could do something, if I could do the, what they have done in a similar situation. Uh, as Sarah mentioned there, many of the families have come forward to say they do forgive him. Obviously, they can't forget it's a horrific situation. But the fact that he sat down with them and allowed and, and took responsibility for it has been a big step in their grieving process. But is eight years enough, do you think? We could use a little positive and good news this morning, couldn't we? So yeah, let's do that for you right now. We're learning about a group of researchers here in BC that have developed a new robot. No, no, it's not like an AI thing. Don't worry, this robot has a really lovely purpose and a really effective purpose as well. This robot could help soothe and comfort premature babies at BC Women's Hospital. So how does it do that? Well, that's what we're going to learn about right now uh, with Professor Lisa Holstey, who's a Canada Research Chair in Neonatal Health and Development and an Occupational Therapist with BC Women's Hospital. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Tell me about this robot. What is this? The robot is a platform that fits right into an incubator. It replaces the mattress. And it has three functions. There is a skin-like surface. It has a heartbeat sound and a breathing motion. And the heartbeat and the breathing rate, we can modify to match the mother of each individual baby. Wow. Okay. So tell me, what kind of an impact do you think this will have? Well, we hope that in the long run, we will help reduce babies' stress when they have procedures that are necessary for their medical care, such as blood tests, and that if we have calmer available more regularly for babies, that we will send them home as, as healthy as they can be. So this kind of gives them the feeling that their mom is nearby. Yeah, we're trying not to replace the parents. Parents are the most important people in the baby's lives. There are times when parents can't be available, and so we were trying to fill a gap uh, to provide the stimulus, uh, some of the stimulus that a parent would provide if they were holding their baby. What happens uh, when a baby is born prematurely, uh, Professor Holstey? What is the process like, like some of the challenges that baby faces? Uh, multiple challenges. They're really born too soon, and so they come into an environment where their brain is not really ready to experience the bright lights, the noise, and the type of handling that has to happen to save their lives. And so our job is to try to make that transition as gentle as possible and to provide care that is very sensitive to their needs and the family's needs. Right. Okay, so tell me about the robot then. Like, who created it? Uh, I am the lead inventor of the robot, along with another team of researchers and uh, Dr. Karen McLean, who's in the Department of Computing Science at UBC, is also a lead inventor. And uh, we work we work together with lots of people to try to put this together so that it would work well in the neonatal intensive care environment. And so, is it being used already? It's not quite ready for prime time. This is the first uh, large trial that we've done testing it uh, under controlled circumstances, and we still need to do some more testing. We're building another prototype with BCIT so that we can introduce calmer when babies come into the nursery mm-hmm. and, stay, and stay on calmer until they go home. 
Oh, that is so nice. Okay, so like you said, you've been testing this then. What has the testing uh, phase been like? Uh, the testing phase has been really great. We've had lots of support from parents to allow us to study their babies when they have blood tests uh, that allowed us to figure out whether this uh, robot would actually work. And so it's been one of those, as you said, it's a good news story. We, we've had lots of positive uh, feedback about it from the families and also the staff in the NICU. I can imagine. Yeah. So can you see this being used in hospitals elsewhere? That's the goal. Uh, my long-term vision for this is that we have Calmer built into every incubator so that babies across Canada and around the world can have the benefit of it. This must just be, is this one of those situations where you're like, why didn't anybody think of this before? Well, I think people have been working on similar ideas. What makes our invention different is that we designed it specifically to be used to reduce stress related to medical procedures for premature babies. It may have broader use for other uh, bigger babies. We just haven't tested that out yet. So this is for essentially like when you have to draw blood or things like that? Yeah, Uh, And that was the particular procedure that we did in our randomized trial. There may be other procedures that this will help. We we haven't done the research about that yet, so I don't want to go too far. (laughs) Um, But the blood tests are the most common medical procedures that these babies have that are stressful. And so that was why we chose it. And what can you tell me a bit about the reaction of what happened, the difference with having the calmer and not having it? What we know is that with the Calmer, we reduced uh, pain scores by about 50%. And when we compared the Calmer to a nurse doing what we call hand hugging, which is holding the baby in a curled position, that the pain scores, the baby's heart rate, and the baby's brain blood flow were the same as if the nurse were doing the hand hugging. That's pretty impressive. Thank you. Uh, as I said, we're not, we're not trying to replace human parents, um, but if the opportunity arises where the nurses can't be available, we really wanted something to try to fill that gap. And um, if the parents can't be there, the same thing. Oh, anything I think you can do, though, I'm sure parents will tell you anything you can do to make sure their preemie is just a little bit more comfortable is something that they would want to see. Yeah, and certainly that that was my goal as well. I was a clinician in the nursery for almost 20 years before I became a researcher. So this is a project that's very near and dear to me, for sure. Oh, I hope it's successful. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the time. Uh, We really appreciate it for the babies. The Canadian justice system, in particular in Saskatchewan, is the focus of a lot of attention today because of the case of Jaskarat Singh Sidhu. He is the man who pled guilty to causing the bus crash that killed 16 members of the Humboldt Broncos and injured another 13. That was almost exactly a year ago. And it has been an unbelievably difficult year for the families and for the victims to try to get some semblance of normalcy back in their life as they have been waiting for this legal process to unfold. So Mr. Sidhu pleaded guilty. He received an eight-year prison sentence this morning in court to 29 counts of dangerous driving. Now, the court uh, had to weigh a lot of different factors in the sentencing, and people often wonder, like, how does the court come to this conclusion? The one thing we did hear from the family members outside of court is that they felt that the judge in this case was very fair, did a good job of explaining everything to 
uh, all of the victims and the family members who were there uh, waiting for this sentence. But we wanted to learn more about all the different factors that the judge has to consider when deciding to impose a sentence like this. And so for that, we turn to our next guest, Jennifer Quaid, who's an assistant professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. What did you think of this sentence then? Does this sound appropriate to you? Well, I was among those people who uh, who was, I suppose, hoping, I don't think that's the right word, uh, who was maybe thinking that um, a sentence that was not as long might be more appropriate um, in relation to the, the facts of this case. But the judge uh, took, has a different interpretation of the of the circumstances than than I did anyway, looking from the outside. But she also heard the evidence, so she's in the best position to de- decide. Um, so I think that the sentence is is harsh, but uh, one can certainly see when you read the reasons of the judge how she got there, and and it certainly is um, a sentence that can be defended. It's it's just it, I find it on the higher end. What is the process like then? So when a judge is putting together a sentence like this, what do they consider? So the process that's codified in the criminal code um, is is kind of a, let's say, a two-step process, really, is how it should be done. Uh, first, you're supposed to look at what is a proportionate sentence in the circumstances, uh, applying what we call the principle of proportionality, which has two uh, components. The first component is looking at the what we call objective gravity of the offense, and the second component is looking at the moral culpability or the moral blameworthiness of the offender. Um, some of the re- some of the reason why some people, including myself, thought this was a more difficult case is because we felt that the those two components were pulling in opposite directions. The judge, however, does not seem to have come down that way, and I'm happy to get into that in a minute. Yeah. The second the second phase after you look at these two factors is then to weigh aggravating and mitigating factors to see whether that you know alters your original assessment. So then you know all, mitigating factors are things like pleading guilty, expressing remorse, uh, it's your first offense, that kind of thing. And aggravating factors are usually related to you know specifics of the crime, so crimes that target children, for example or if you've, you know, an officer of the law or, or that kind of thing. There can be other, mm-hmm. fa- or the fact that you have a criminal record. Okay. And so then you mentioned the other part of it, too, that you were going to get into. Well, that's that's it. There's part one is proportionality. Part two is the aggravating and mitigating factors. And so that, you know, those are the two steps that you would you would look at. Um, normally what happens... At, as the as you the judge is discussing the proportionality part and then looking at the factors is at the end of the day they're also going to tie whatever amount they come out with to um, the justifications or if you will the goals of punishment mm-hmm. that we identify in the criminal code so things like de- denunciation deterrence rehabilitation uh, corrective uh, corrective measures or what we call sometimes restorative justice uh, so there are there are uh, different things and in different cases you will emphasize uh, you know, different objectives. So it's not expected that you can meet all the objectives with one sentence or that all of them have the same relevance or importance in a given case. Right. And where does the remorse factor come into this? Because the, one of the things that has been cited in this case is that Jaskarat Singh Sadhu did plead guilty, that he did apologize to the families, essentially tried to do what he could uh, to, you know, talk to the families about this. Does that factor into sentencing? So expressing remorse is considered a distinct mitigating factor from pleading guilty. 
that's because pleading guilty doesn't necessarily mean you apologize, right? And in right. fact, there are plenty of cases where there's a guilty plea, but there's no um, no corresponding statement by the accused to say, and I feel very bad about it, and I'm sorry for what I did, and that kind of thing. So the two are not considered the same. So the fact that Mr. Sidhu did both is very important. And I think... Um, Many people don't appreciate how significant the guilty plea was in this case. It is far from clear that the Crown would have had a walk in the park convicting Mr. Mr. Sidhu. As much as people may feel that, you know, what he did was, was wrong and that, you know, this was a terrible accident, which, of course, it was, it was tragic, um, it's not the same as saying the Crown was going to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt all the elements of the offence. And in particular, in a case like this, you have to... The, the way you prove the offense is, is uh, to say that what the person did is at a marked departure from what a reasonable person in the circumstance would do. That means in this kind of case, you first have to establish what a reasonable person in the circumstances would do and then compare it to what the accused did and then have to conclude that that is a sufficiently large gap that it's considered a marked departure. So the fact that he pled guilty really uh, saved the need to have prob- what would have probably been fairly detailed testimony with experts examining the records, going through witness accounts and so on. And that, that's, I think, a very significant um That would have been torturous for the family, yeah. Like, that would have been very Absolutely. difficult for the families here. Yes, yes, of course. Mr. Sidhu ultimately is the one who faces the criminal consequences. So the trial isn't, you know, whether we like it or not, the trial is the opportunity for the accused to, to, um, to have their their hearing in court. But yes, it would have it would have been horrible for the families. I think that's fairly clear. And and the sentencing hearing was already very difficult for them. So, so we we should acknowledge that 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 was a significant. Um, decision yeah. on his part. And then expressing remorse is going that step further and saying, you know, I I want to say to you personally, and I think he really, you know, said it in, in quite a moving way from the way the accounts are, that, you know, he, he really meant it. And he said it sincerely. And it was obvious it was difficult, you know, for him to live with the with the with the, the guilt he feels and, and with the responsibility he feels for what he did. So that certainly also has to weigh in the in the considerations. Does this case set a precedent then that other cases involving, you know, accidents and, and fatalities will look back on? I doubt it for the simple reason that it's very very unusual case. It's, you know, a huge number of people killed and injured um, with a, you know, a driving mistake that, yes, is a somewhat inexplicable lack of attention at a critical time, but nevertheless is not, you know, this is not a drunk driving case. This is not someone texting on their phone. This is not someone doing something deliberately dangerous like passing, you know, when there's oncoming traffic or I don't know. And so, I'm not sure we're going to get this kind of scenario coming up again uh, in this way. Now, it will be out there as a decision that's made and, and, and perhaps will be looked to for other cases where there are multiple victims. But, of course, the law on dangerous driving has changed. And, in fact, one of the parts of that legislation, the judge alludes to it very, very briefly in her judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, the sentences have been increased, and also we have added specific factors, aggravating factors, um, and factors that have to be considered in a judgment. And two of you know there there are some that would have been relevant here, like whether you're a professional driver, whether there are multiple victims, and so you know some of some of the way that the law will be applied in the future may in fact be you know tweaked or slightly different from what it is now because of these changes to the rules. Right. But then it sounds like from everything that you've described and this just was a very unique case. 
I think so. I think that's that's fair to say that it, it was very unusual. Unusual because, of course, the magnitude and the, the sheer, um, you know, tragedy of it all for the families. We, I mean, you just can't imagine how awful it has been for them. But also because, you know, we're in a situation where the accused did pretty much everything the criminal justice system would hope that an accused would do, but which 99% of the time they don't. So he... He acknowledged his mistake fully and completely. He pled guilty. He didn't put up a fight at the sentencing hearing. He really didn't push that hard on anything. He basically said, give me the sentence you think I deserve. Um, and, you know, so in some ways is, 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 the, is a model for how you want people to react mm-hmm. when they are subject to the criminal law. That's not going to happen anytime soon, I don't think. In another case, no. In another case. I, I, I think it's pretty unique to this circumstance. And I think it just goes back to the fact this is such an unusual case. Uh, And then so I don't know that it's going to be of any direct application to other cases, but it will certainly be out there as a case we will look at and study uh, in sentencing law because it it is a, it it required that the judge really look at the factors and and the elements of sentencing in 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 a pretty tough case. It was, yeah, it's definitely that. Jennifer, thank you so much for explaining it to us. Thank you for having me. That was very illuminating. That is Jennifer Quaid, an assistant professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. Well, I tell you, you learn something new every day, right? Like I am a regular, I love going to Costco. I'll admit that right now. I'm a regular there. I love the fact that they all know me by name and they wave when I walk in there. But when you're feeding a big family, a very hungry family of teenagers, that's really the only place you can go. Like I spend a lot of money on groceries and I've spent much, much time there. Uh, But it turns out, not everybody knows what it's all about. This surprised me. So our producer, Alan Regan, is new to all of this, and he uh, joins me now. Hi, Alan. Hello, Simi. Okay, so how long have you been living in Canada now? Almost five years now. So, I mean, I moved to Vancouver first, September 2014, so almost five years ago. And you only just recently visited your very first Costco. Yep, just shy of two weeks ago. Visited my very first Costco. What brought this on? It was curiosity more than anything. And certainly, you know, you and I work together every single day. I know that you're pretty fond of Costco. (laughs) And I had so much curiosity. American Costco even more so, but yes. You you were telling me one day about the number of uh, staff that they have whose job it is exclusively is just to like shop for toilet paper there. Okay, so here's the thing. I'll just, that sounds like really bizarre, but I'll just explain. I actually read the Costco magazine that comes to my house, you know, they you wouldn't know, but they send it to you as part of your membership. And I was reading an article once about the number one selling product that they have, and it's their toilet paper, which as everybody knows, it's great toilet paper. Uh, and they have three people on staff at their headquarters whose only job is to source and do quality control for the toilet paper because it's like their number one most important product. Mm-hmm. That's pretty impressive. And if that didn't pique my interest, in a business right? then. Well, yeah, there, there you go. Uh, so yeah, so on a Saturday afternoon a few weeks back, uh, I went to the Costco in downtown Vancouver. Uh, I went with my girlfriend, uh, Jacqueline, we call her Jack, and our friend Andrea. And, you know, of course, you, you had been telling me and all these people had been telling me that, you know, Costco is this uh, shopper's paradise. It's, you know, this consumer wonderland. Um, it may interest you, though, that when I walked through the door of the downtown Costco, this was the first thing that I noticed. The first thing I notice is that it's very, very dim. It's super dim. I don't know why. I was expecting it to be more brightly lit, like a superstore or something. But it's very grey. And it kind of feels like if this was in the UK or Ireland, 
it feels like they've taken the Argos catalogue and they've just put everything out on display. Like TVs and sound displays that people can just test out and everything. It's funny. It is very industrial chic. Mm. It is a minimalist. That's the whole idea. I guess when it was founded, the whole idea was, we're not going to bother you with all of this other frou-frou stuff. Here's the product. You want it, buy it. If you don't, leave it. Yeah, there's no like music being pumped in at no. you, other than the sound display that you could hear creeping in the back of that uh, clip yeah, there. No. But, you know, there's it's no bells and whistles. It's just straight up, here are the goods and services that you are here for, and, you know, you can buy them, and that's that. Okay, so then you took a wander around the store. Yeah, and we went, you know, past the TVs, past the office furniture, and this is where I began to get a bit confused. I went in, we went into the centre section, and, you know, all of these aisles, you know, initially where there was a theme for each aisle, that kind of made sense but as we made our way through that little center section i began a bit conf- i began to get a bit confused but thankfully my friend andrea was there to help me out like we were speaking a moment ago about the rhyme or reason as to where things are Ooh. located you might have to explain this one to me mm-hmm. there are women's seamless briefs right beside children's books right beside reading glasses right beside camping equipment mm-hmm. I don't understand the connection why these are all in the one aisle. Well, I think you kind of have to look at it as three separate aisles because so the the women's underwear is actually just the back area of more underwear and socks that are just on the other side. So it's more like a strip of things. It's not necessarily an aisle per se. So you have a strip of women's underwear and socks and pajamas and leggings. And then now you have a strip of books and games and whatnot. And then the next strip is going to be outdoor items. So kind of think of them as separate things as opposed to being all connected in the one aisle. Correct. Okay. I had never even thought of it when you put it that way, Alan. That's (laughs) interesting. Just a random assortment of all of these different things. Okay. Well, listen, while we were talking about this, uh, we've actually had a phone call for somebody who wants to weigh in on this. Hi. Hi, Simi and Alan. It's Drex. (laughs) Hi, Drex. How are you? We understand you want to weigh in on this conversation. You, you know what? I'm a, I'm a new Canadian as well. I've lived in Canada for 10 years, and my first Costco, Costco experience was in Kelowna, and it was the most overwhelming thing. I think I almost had a panic attack at the size of the pies. Oh, the and, pies. And you know what? His, oh, the pies are amazing, because I, I remember watching Oprah in the late 90s, and I remember she went to Costco in one episode. I was like, oh, my God, if I ever move to North America, I have to get one of those giant pies. And then I saw one, and I bought it as an impulse buy. But there's... There's some rules to Costco. Oh, okay. What have you learned? I'll tell you my rules, but what are your rules? Like, don't ever... Like, they have really good clothes, but don't ever, if you're a man, ever wear Kirkland brand jeans. It means that you've given up. (laughs) It does not. It does not mean mean that at all. Like, like I get underwear at Costco, but I would never wear Kirkland brand jeans. Okay. It's, it's just like I'm not wearing the grocery store brand jeans around. Like all of their food products are amazing, but not their jeans. Don't do that. My rules are a little bit different than yours. My rule is more like never go hungry. That's like what my rule was because you'll spend too much money. You'll kind of do that anyway. Oh, though. Yeah. You know what? Their, chick- their, their chicken salad is amazing. Oh, I so agree with you on that. Anyway, we, <laughs> we, thank you for your take on that, Drex. We're going to hear more about Alan's no trip, problem. okay? Thank you for calling in. Don't forget, you can catch Drex uh, on tonight. Oh, no, you're not tonight. You're not on tonight, are you? 
No, he's not. No, he's, he's, not, not, he's, not, he's, not he's not. He's not on Sunday. He'll yeah. be back in on Sunday that, night. That was your, on the your, shift with Drex. your live Drex. That is for today. Drex, who you'd think would be sleeping at this point uh, with his overnight I'm show. I'm impressed he's awake. Okay, so you were saying that you were also surprised by um, that there was so much space. Yeah, and you know, it was interesting that, you know, in the initial aisles, I was thinking, well, this is kind of where we, you know, want to be and all that kind of stuff. But then as you make your way through, you notice that in the produce in the produce section in particular that's where the congestion really occurs and that was something that was quite surprising to me as well because i had eased myself into this thinking that you know oh, it'll be fine because in the office furniture aisles they're not that busy but then you realize that all the crowds are at the backside where yes. the produce is um and that wasn't where the peculiar the peculiarities kind of ended for me because as we were leaving there was certainly one peculiarity that stood out question for you guys <laughs> Why does the cart go to the left and why do we stand to the right at the conveyor belt? Because of the, the packer is going to deal with repacking all the stuff in boxes and bags and they, they deal with it in your cart. So they want the cart next to the packer and then we just pay on that So side. we don't have to pack our own bags. No. They do all that for they us. They will do it all for you. That's very 90s. Yeah. It's been many decades since the shopping attendants have done that for me. Yeah, see, so you don't have to do that. Some stores you go to, you'll have to pack all your own stuff. But no, at Costco, they will do it for you. I was so impressed. Had not seen that in such a long time. And of course, you know, you're at the checkout, you're paying your bill. You know, and I was warned that you do end up spending more than usual in Costco, as we've been Listen, discussing. If you can ever get out of Costco spending less than $100, I want to meet you and shake your hand because that's <laughs> impressive. Yeah, because that's the price of nearly the price of one gift card in there. Uh, <laughs> what's So what was the damage at the end of our visit? Well, my girlfriend, Jack, and I looked at the bill. So on a normal trip to the grocery store, what we spent about $150 there. Yeah. How much was it today? $428. $428. But there are a few one-off items. Yeah, and like things that we wouldn't normally have gotten. Like I got clothes, which I never got at the shop. I got a plant. You got an $80 thing, so there's over like probably $150 there alone. Yeah, my $80 thing was a gift card that has $100 value for our barbers that I go to but $80 price for that so I'm saving 20 bucks by doing that yeah exactly and we bought a lot of things in bulk like we bought a ton of onions we bought lots of potatoes lots of bread and tons of shower gel so in the long run we are saving money yeah totally everything we got was like the same or cheaper yeah and there were a few things that we didn't get like carrots we didn't get black beans that we're going to get because we can get those cheaper elsewhere but yeah Anything that we did get, we're definitely saving money on the long one. Yeah. Totally. Oh my gosh, Alan, I laughed so hard. You heard me just <laughs> laughing now. So your regular grocery bill is $150? Yep. And you spent how much? $420. <laughs> Just buying things. But I'm very curious to see what our next couple of grocery <laughs> bills will be. Hopefully that, it'll be less. That right there is the perfect initiation to <laughs> going to Costco. The, I spent how much money there and I did I bought what? Classic. And now you'll be hooked, I'm sure. Right? Absolutely. It won't, it won't be my last visit, that's for sure. <laughs> I'm sure about that. Thank you for that, Alan. That's Thanks our producer, me. Alan. An alarming story out there for Canadian canola farmers, and there's a lot of them. A potentially big hit to their pocketbooks there, and this is just weeks away from a critical time for them. Canola seed exporters have told the Canola Council of Canada that Chinese importers are essentially unwilling to buy their product. And the Chinese market makes up 40% of the market that Canada sells to. So what is going on with this? Now, some people have suggested that these moves are a retaliation for Canada's arrest of the Chinese executive from Huawei. 
Speaking with reporters in Ontario about an hour ago, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, tried to remain optimistic about this, saying he believes that they can work out the issues with China over canola imports. This is something that we've already uh, been in close contact with uh, farmers and uh, uh, folks right across the country who are affected uh, by this uh, suspension of, uh, of purchases by China. But I will remind people that in 2016, we faced a similar situation where uh, China had uh, suspended imports of canola from Canada. We worked very hard with the Chinese to settle this particular issue. So we're going to roll up our sleeves and work with uh, the Chinese officials uh, to demonstrate that uh, canola should continue uh, to flow safely from Canada to, uh, to China. All right, that's Prime Minister Trudeau. But what are the issues? Why is this even happening? That's what we wanted to learn about. Brian Ennis joins us now, Vice President of Public Affairs at the Canola Council of Canada. Brian, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Can you explain what's going on here? Like, why are Canadian canola farmers not being able to sell to China? Well, it's hard to know exactly why. What we do know is that earlier in March, one company had their export license suspended, and at the same time, China announced that it would increase inspections for all Canadian canola. And what we know as as a canola council is that all of our Canadian exporters um, tell us the same thing, which is that Chinese buyers are no longer interested in Canadian canola. So that has a, has a major impact, as you outlined. Right. Is there any... Like, is there any way that Canadian farmers can push back against this? Well, we're certainly uh, very supportive and encouraging that the government um, have technical discussions with the Chinese government. There have been some technical exchanges before, so these are people in the Canadian Agri-Food Inspection Agency uh, who can work with their Chinese colleagues and really get to the bottom of, of the Chinese concerns that have been raised. So these are things like weed seeds and identifying species. So we're hopeful that there can be some progress made there, uh, but we're also very aware that when Canada and China get into discussions, canola is often part of those discussions. And why is that? Well, canola makes up about 40% of, of, uh, or actually, uh, our largest export from, from Canada to China. So, in fact, on any given year, most, uh, a lot of uh, our exports from Canada to China are canola. And is that, when you look at this though, is there any other reason why you think this could be happening? Well, there's been lots of speculation, which, which I can't really affirm, but, but what we do know is that canola does come up uh, in discussions when there are tensions between Canada and China. So we're hopeful that there can be some improvement, but there's, it has having real impact on producers, producers who have canola still on their farm from last year that they're looking to sell and are watching the prices go lower for it. And at the same time, they're about to go out into the fields this year and plant a crop and hopefully have someplace to sell it to come harvest time. Yeah, so what's going to happen with that then? Will there be help for canola farmers um, or, or they just have to sit and watch this happen? Well, it's not the first time that we've had challenges with China. Um, We've actually had uh, prime ministers involved three times over the last decade to keep our canola going to China. Um, So we're we're not entirely... uh, 
uh, new to having uncertainty affect the canola market. Producers faced a lot of uncertainty, whether it's having too much rain, not enough rain, too much heat, not enough heat. Uh, and so mm. producers are some of the most resilient folks that we know in Canada. And we're, uh, and while this is a serious risk and a serious concern, not just to farmers, but to everybody in the industry, um, we're hoping that it can be resolved before too long. So if China normally buys a lot of Canadian canola and now they've stopped, well, where are they getting canola from? Like, do they have their own industry? They grow some canola, but they also import a lot of other oil seeds to get cooking oil from, like soybeans or sunflowers. Uh, so we, we believe that we have top quality uh, canola in the world and that Chinese demand has been strong and, and our customers in China want more canola. And the challenge is that uh, we're, we're in a particularly rough patch at the moment. So China can import things like soybeans from the United States or from South America, uh, but really Canada is is the king when it comes to canola. Almost two-thirds of all the canola in the world comes from Canada. So what's going to happen to the industry then here? Can we rebound from this? Can, are we going to be okay? Well, we're really hopeful that, that we can get a solution before too long because when 40% of our exports go to China, uh, it's pretty hard to fill a market that size uh, by sending canola somewhere else. We do have a lot of uh, other customers in the world, the customers that really appreciate the quality of our Canadian canola. So these are customers like Japan and Mexico and Europe and the United States. We send a lot of canola seed as well to places like Pakistan and Bangladesh and the United Arab Emirates. So we can, we're looking for for more opportunities to send canola to all of those places. But filling a hole the size of China is difficult mm-hmm. with 40% of, of all of our exports going there. Have we ever heard of the kind of complaints that China is making about the Canadian product? Have we ever heard about that from any other co- country? No. Uh, other countries uh, appreciate the quality of product that we offer and and. and through our quality assurance systems, we believe it's the highest in the world. So we've not heard other other concerns coming from any of those other markets, whether it's Japan or the United States or the Europeans, who all have very stringent requirements when it comes to exporting. When, when it comes to exporting canola, really what has to happen is that it has to be certified before it leaves Canada that it's going to meet the requirements of other countries. So we're really perplexed on, on what's come up uh, with the Chinese. Okay, so what's the timeline here then, Brian? Like For these Canadian farmers, how quickly do they need this to be solved? Well, uh, the sooner the better is certainly the answer because every day that goes by is a day the price is lower and essentially that means farmers' incomes are lower and that means less dollars to spend uh, on everything that runs their businesses and and supports the communities they live in and and the communities across Canada. So every day that goes by uh, means that there's a a hit being taken by uh, by the people in the canola industry, and that's about a quarter million jobs across the country. Um, So we're hopeful it can be resolved quickly. Um, We don't think it's going to be resolved immediately, which is why we, we felt really strongly that everybody in the industry needed to understand what our exporters were telling us. Uh, which is that the Chinese uh, importers are not looking to buy Canadian canola at the moment, uh, which is a real challenge for us. So we hope that things can be resolved quickly. Um, you know, uh, farmers will be going to the field in a few short weeks when the rest of the snow is finally off their fields, and they're going to be harvesting in September. So uh, we uh, would really like it resolved uh, without delay. And is, it, is that message being heard at the highest levels of the Canadian government? Well, we uh, certainly uh, have had an audience uh, with uh, 
the highest officials, uh, including ministers, and uh, and hearing uh, both the leader of the opposition and the prime minister comment on it today uh, gives us assurance that the, the issue is being paid attention to. Ultimately, this is a technical issue that needs to be worked out between technical experts. Uh, the challenge has become is when we talk about technical issues with China, oftentimes that requires uh, engagement of, of a lot of people. All right. Well, good luck with this, Brian. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for asking. I do hope it gets worked out. That's Brian Innes, Vice President of Public Affairs at the Canola Council of Canada.